Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. For those of you that I don't know, uh, my name is Justin, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to actually do something very different today. Um, very different than anything we've ever done. Uh, what we want to do is we actually want to have uh, some time. Now we're going to set aside some time to reflect on uh, a little bit of what I just prayed uh, about uh, this past week. As many of you know, uh, Tim Keller uh, passed away. For those of you that may not know him or uh, know much about uh, his his story, he is the, refo- the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, um, which multiplied several years ago into five different churches, uh, of which we are one. Um, and his passing is, it's really significant. It's a significant thing, uh, especially for us uh, as a, a ministry that came out of what he and Kathy founded back in 1989, um, as well as uh, there are literal millions of people around the world that are grieving uh, as a result of his passing. Um, it's really significant. Uh, in many of our lives. It's significant in the life of our church. It's significant uh, in the realities of the the network of churches um, that he has passed. And so today uh, we're going to do a couple of things. We want to spend some time uh, certainly reflecting on on Tim and his legacy, but we also really want uh, today to be very forward-looking as well, uh, to consider a bit about um, what his legacy means for us as a church and just so that you're aware in the coming weeks there's going to be a formal uh, memorial service and so that will really be our time to be able to um, remember him well. But today we're going to spend a little bit of time again remembering him but also consider a pretty great calling that we have. And so uh, what we want to do is uh, to begin we're going to show a video uh, that we if you were part of the Redeemer night that we had uh, uh, Time is just a mess. Uh, two days ago, uh, Friday night, um, there's a, a, a video that he actually originally was going to be uh, sharing with us uh, in person that day uh, because of his, uh, his ongoing treatments. It just wasn't going to be possible for him to be there physically. And so he recorded this video for us. That Redeemer night, uh, if you were there, you heard us say this quite a few times. We picked uh, May 19th super randomly months ago. And it was very random to us that we were going to have this gathering of the churches on May 19th. But we serve a sovereign God um, for whom nothing is random. And providentially, Tim passed that morning, Friday morning, the night that we were already planning on being together. And he had already pre-recorded the words that we're about to show you um, long before. And so I think the significance of this video is that these words that you're about to hear from him are the last words that he would give to our churches, uh, to you as those who are part of the church. Uh, And so we're going to show you this video, and then I'm going to have Pastor Abe and I, um, he's going to join me, and we're going to have a bit of a conversation about Tim and about some of the things that you're going to hear in this video. And then after that, I'm going to kind of pull it all together to put in front of us a pretty significant call that I think the Lord um, is putting before us. So that said, um, let's, uh, if you guys are ready, let's show this video. It's about 10 minutes long, um, and so I just settle in and um, reflect 
on the things that he's about to put in front of us because they're pretty significant uh, for you individually, but also for us as a church. Uh, so guys, why don't you go ahead and hit that for me? Hi, it just means the world to me that uh, the pastors of your churches have asked me to address you at this meeting, and I'm very excited to do so. They asked me to address two questions, and I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to give you three bits of advice, if that's all right. The two questions are pretty important questions. The first one is, is Redeemer still relevant? Is Redeemer still crucial? When we came here almost 34 years uh, ago, uh, as high, it just means the world to me that Sorry, we're going to try that again. Okay, don't look. You're about to see behind the curtain of how this stuff works. Don't look. Don't talk amongst yourselves for a second. Okay, sorry, let's try that again. Hi, it just means the world to me that uh, the pastors of your churches have asked me to address you at this meeting, and I'm very excited to do so. They asked me to address two questions, and I'm gonna do that, and then I'm going to give you three bits of advice, if that's all right. The two questions are pretty important questions. The first one is, is Redeemer still relevant? Is Redeemer still crucial? When we came here almost 34 years uh, ago, uh, as the Keller family, almost 34 years, we came knowing that we were moving into a place where, unlike at that time, the rest of America, uh, Christianity was really seen as not just a, a, even a neutral thing, it was actually seen as a bad thing. It was seen as something that really gets in the way of human flourishing. And when we got here, we had to both do our evangelism and we had to do our spiritual formation, uh, building people up into Christ-likeness in a very uh, relatively, to the rest of the country, hostile environment, certainly not one that was conducive and, and uh, welcoming at all. And as you all know, that that, um, that kind of attitude toward Christianity, which wasn't really very prominent in the rest of the country, that was 34 years ago, that's changed. And now the same kind of antipathy to Christian beliefs and the same kind of antipathy to um, the uh, Christian understanding of human nature and human destiny and God and morality, all of those things have now spread to much of the rest of the country. And so what happened over the years was that Redeemer, uh, I remember thinking when I got here, I said, you know, the things we're doing here are not going to be relevant to anybody else because Manhattan is so weird. And so very, very different. But what happened over the years, as many of you know, is people looked at Redeemer and, and found many things that Redeemer did that now were relevant in Virginia, now were relevant in Pennsylvania, now were relevant in Arizona. And uh, therefore, Redeemer always was quite relevant. Well, get this. 
New York is still New York. Oh, it's limping because of the pandemic. It's got lots and lots of things that it's going to have to come back from. I've been here long enough to know that New York is resilient. It's going to stay one of the great cities of the world. And there will always be things that develop in New York that then spread to the rest of the world. And if Redeemer is here doing evangelism, doing um, uh, discipleship, if Redeemer continues to be a church like we were in the beginning, a church not just for ourselves, but for our friends who don't believe in Christ, not just church as usual, but a church that's radically gospel-centered. If we really stay Redeemer, and there's no reason why we can't, we will still be not just able to reach people and change people's lives in New York. We will be most relevant to the rest of the world. That we'll still learn. We will still be able to share what we're learning with many other people. And Redeemer continues to be relevant. The second question that people have asked me to answer was. What should Redeemer do over the next 10 years? And here's what I think it should do. It should do what it's always done, and I just mentioned what some of those things are. But for the first time as a network, Redeemer did what it did as a megachurch. I think the biggest we ever got was about 5,000, 5,500 people coming. And the idea was that we would divide, uh, we would multiply, excuse me, that's a more positive word, Uh, And we multiplied into three congregations, and the idea was that then we would have three congregations a little more focused on their part of the city, each congregation a little more human scale in size because a five, six thousand member church was pretty, pretty amazing and overwhelming to a lot of people. More human scale, but at the same time, because we were working together, we still have many, many ministries of of the quality of a megachurch, even without actually having to be attending a megachurch. Now, the problem with that is that in the last five, six years, many, many things happen in the city. Uh, there are two pastoral transitions out of the three. And for a lot of reasons, the network never really got off the ground. And yet now I think that's what we need to do. We need to do what Redeemer has always done, but for the first time, do what I've always thought was better even than when I was the pastor. I believe that to have three churches of 800 people is better than having one church of 2,400 people. I think you will find that the discipleship, the pastoral care, I will think the deployment of individuals in in using their gifts, uh, its ability to reach into their neighborhoods, honestly, a a really uh, close, loving network, collaborative and cooperating network of three 800-member churches is a lot better than one church of 2,400. And we're not going to just be three churches. We're already five. And we're not going to, it won't be long before we'll be six and seven and eight. And that excites me because a network that gives you human scale congregations where you attend, but that together can actually mount ministries that are mega church in their quality, it's pretty exciting to me. So what we should do the next 10 years is to be a network and to continue to serve the whole city, not just ourselves. Three pits of advice from the book of Jeremiah. So I have to read this to you. Uh, Over the last couple of years, I've noticed that Jeremiah still speaks to me as somebody who's ministered in New York City. Uh, The first bit of advice is live on razor's edge. Live on the razor's edge. Many of you have heard me say this before, but (laughs) Jeremiah 29 says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You say, what razor's edge? 
The Babylonians took the Jews to Babylon in order to destroy their culture, to destroy their faith. They assumed that if they moved into the city, they would assimilate, and their children, or certainly their grandchildren, would worship the Babylonian gods and just lose their identity as uh, Israel, as the people of God. And there were people who said, okay, we don't want that to happen, so when we get to Babylon, because we've been taken there by force, let's stay outside. Let's stay outside so we can keep our identity. And the Lord <laughs> says to them, I want you to move into the city, but I want you to keep your identity. I want you to increase the numbers and keep your faith, but at the same time, I want you to engage. I want you to seek its peace and prosperity. I want you to pray to the Lord for it. I want you to love it. That's a razor's edge. Engage but at the same time, be different. Don't assimilate and just pick up all the views of the culture, but don't stay out, keep your skirts clean, denounce everybody. No. Live on the razor's edge. Number two, invest, don't just consume. Invest, don't just consume. In Jeremiah 32, right before the exile, I mean, the Babylonians are coming, everybody knows everything's going to fall apart. And we're told, this is what Jeremiah says, My cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. So I bought the field. For the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be, brought, will again be bought in this land. See, right now, if you live in the Ukraine, especially in the eastern Ukraine, uh, would you buy a piece of property? <laughs> Probably not. Why? Because you don't even know whether it's going to end up in Russia or if it's going to end up in Ukraine. It would be a terrible investment. And that's exactly what Hanamel is asking Jeremiah to do. He's saying, please take this land off my hands. Give me some money so I can get out of here because the Babylonians are going to be here. And Jeremiah says, I know what God has said. Yes, there will be a conquest. Yes, there'll be a, uh, you know, an exile. But Houses and lands will be sold here. I will bring the people back. I, I'm good on my promises. Look, don't just come here to consume. Don't just come to New York to say, I want to get this on the resume and have an exciting church experience and, you know, uh, go to all the great restaurants. Invest here. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. He doesn't just say, I will build my church, except in big cities. I will build my church. So invest in the church, invest your time, invest your, yes, your money, invest your, but invest your life. Lastly, forget about your reputation. Jeremiah 45, five, this is what Jeremiah says to his secretary, Baruch. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Genesis 11 tells us that people tend to go to the city to make a name for themselves. They get excited. They're going to come. They're going to do well in their work. And by the way, ministers very often come to New York City to make a name for themselves. Just letting you know that. You know, I gotta, I'm a minister in New York City. I'm cool. I'm going to do well here. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about your credentials. Ministers do not identify, don't make your ministry success your identity. So this, if things don't go well, you just feel like an utter failure. You just freak out. People don't make getting a big name in New York City your main thing. Lift up Jesus' name. 
Hallowed be thy name. Forget yourself. Forget your reputation. Do what you can to lift up God's name. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Even New Yorkers, of course, all New Yorkers are seeking great things for themselves. No, no. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Thank you for listening. Um, all right, we're going to attempt this. Um, I'm going to just give you a heads up now. Um, I know that we've both been weepy messes, and um, I just handed Abe a couple of tissues because I got a feeling. Also, um, you know, we just decided to make some of the shift uh, yesterday afternoon. So the whole day today has been a bit of a, of a go-with-the-flow kind of day. Um, I'm also going to set a timer because I need to be conscious of time. I feel like this could end up going way longer than anybody wants it to. Um, so I uh, thought we'd do a couple things. Um, so Abe and I, we, you know, we, we wanted to just spend some time maybe sharing a little bit um, about, about Tim and Kathy um, and what they've meant to us. And... Um, personally, but then I also want to spend some time talking a little bit about how Tim as a leader has shaped us and, and the leaders that we are, uh, and then also how Tim has really shaped the life of the church, our, like the church that you're part of. I think there's so much that could be said about how, you know, a lot of the good that you experience in us as leaders, uh, a lot of the good that you experience in the life of our church, um, a lot of it has to do with Tim and his impact that he's had on us. And so, uh, his legacy reverberates, but I thought maybe we could just start with sharing a little bit um, just about what he means to us personally. Again, we'll have memorial time to do this more fully, and um, I don't know. Should I, should I start? I can start a bit. Um, so yesterday uh, was really the first day I had a chance to sit and process everything. Um, I was helping a lot with putting that uh, event together Friday night, and so we had there was a lot of pivoting going on, and uh, so I just I really didn't get a chance to process anything until yesterday, um, and I gotta say, like <laughs> it was a it was an interesting day. I spent a lot of time talking with my wife, who by the way has already loved me so well through all of this. I am not good at grieving, um, and so she's been very very gracious with me. I'm also going to say, I got a feeling she's probably going to text me various things uh, throughout the rest of this conversation that uh, she thinks I should say. Um, so just if I look at my phone, it's probably uh, looking at something from her. But um, anyway, all that to say, uh, yeah, yesterday was the first time I got a chance to really sit and, and to process. Um, and I, I think what struck me is um, it is really incalculable uh, what he has meant to me. Um, and to be honest with you, I really don't think I can describe fully what that means right now. Um, and so I'm not even going to try. Uh, but the, the significance of his support and investment and his mentorship and his encouragement and his love and care for me and my wife, um, it's really been something. There's a, there's a thing we keep talking about. There's a big hole. There's a big hole. Uh, but I think there's a, a, a story that maybe captures that most fully. Um, if there was kind of a defining story, you know, my wife and I, we had, um, not that long ago, we had received some, I guess this was last year, no, received some really devastating news about someone that we love very, very dearly, um, 
what you and I have talked about, just some really devastating news. Um, and my wife was talking to Kathy about it, and uh, Tim called me immediately. And he just wanted to check in and to see how I was doing and to offer some comfort and some advice. Um, and it's kind of just really funny. He immediately launched into this. He wanted to tell me about a dissertation that he read once, which if you know Tim is like so on brand. Uh, That's his love language. Yeah, right? exactly. He launched into this dissertation that he read and uh, <laughs> he always has a point. You know, it's just like, where is this going exactly? But they get to it and oh my gosh, it was like his point. And I don't want to get into all the details, but the point was being, it really was a bomb to, to my soul, to my wife's soul. And we were very encouraged, uh, even despite having, you know, heard this really devastating news. Um, all that, that was the that was like the kind of care that he um, that he had, and uh, I think the other thing that I'll, I'll maybe just share a little bit. Um, so right around about a about a year ago, um, actually was it about a year ago when he first started some of his initial treatments down at uh, the NIH. Um, he obviously couldn't be around a lot of people physically, but it was around that time. It was the last time that I actually saw him, like in person, um, because Kathy had uh, reached out to my wife Angela and just said they had a bunch of stuff for our community closet. Um, there was a ton of stuff in our community closet that came from uh, from the Kellers. Someone's walking around in a Tim Keller suit somewhere. Uh, he gave a bunch of his old suits, um, which is really sweet. Um, and as well, they also gave a. a um, they also gave significantly to help us get that community closet off the ground. They were very much involved in that and very grateful. But anyway, so saw him when we went to pick up some stuff. And uh, you know, yesterday my wife and I were just talking about how good it was to have that image of him because he was still very energetic, um, still happy to see us. You know, they, they weren't able to see people in person very often, and just having that image and that picture uh, really did mean the world to us. And, um, we were only there for a little bit, but spent some time just chatting with them. And before we went, uh, before we left, Angela said, um, can we pray for you, you know, as you're going down for your treatment? And they said, of course, said, sure. And my wife turns to me and said, Justin, pray for him. <laughs> it's, uh, that's how that goes. Uh, that's what wives do. At least that's what my wife does. Uh, so I got to spend time praying for them, for healing. And um, he's healed. <laughs> Right, he's experienced full healing, and so anyway, uh, I could share like that all afternoon, but um, it's just really special times. Yeah. That'd be ready to do this. Um, as I would oftentimes speak of Tim as a spiritual father, I don't realize how true that was until we lost him. And uh, it, it felt like losing a father again. Um, so I'd say I think my first encounter with Tim was back in the early 2000s. I was still in seminary, and I was working in a Korean church and um, driving two and a half hours back and forth on weekends, and <clears throat> full-time student and essentially full-time youth pastor at a Korean church, and um, a friend of mine gave me these old cassette tapes because I had two hours to drive, and 
I, my car was still old at the time. It was old, but it, you know, it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. But I had an old car that didn't have a CD player yet. So all I had was like the radio and then my cassette player. And so he gave me these Tim Keller sermons. Um, and I didn't really know who he was. I feel like I maybe had heard his name a couple of times. But I will never forget drives in the car experiencing grace. It wasn't, it wasn't the first time. I might have been a Christian for a long time. But experiencing the gospel at good news to me. Uh, just driving for two hours on my own. And then it kind of became like this like junkie habit. I was looking for anybody who had black market cassette tapes of Tim Keller sermons, and I would, I would have sold a kidney for more of those tapes, you know. Um, but it was this message of grace that completely undid me. Um, when I went to seminary, I thought I was going to be overseas, and you know, I think when I look back on that, I realized what I was trying to do was I was trying to prove to God that I was the kind of sinner that would do hard things for him as an expression of thanks for dying for me on the cross. And I, it was through Tim Keller's work that I started to realize, oh, that impulse to need to do the hardest thing to show God that I was maybe worth dying for really was just religious flesh. I mean, it was still works righteousness. And that time in seminary was just a lot of God undoing that. And Tim Keller was a big part of that. I think what was maybe even more powerful than that was starting um, at Redeemer. This would have been 2007. And not just hearing a message of grace. And, uh, you know, Redeemer has always been very, like, heavy on Asian American representation. A lot of Korean Americans. And I think there was a whole generation of us that grew up in the church, heard the message, but was really steeped in a lot of legalism. And then you came to Redeemer, and you're like, oh, this is what grace feels like. like. This is what it feels like to not feel like I have to earn a place with the Father. And then meeting Tim in person and working for him, uh, more than the message of grace, it was just the embodiment of that grace. Where it felt like it had in a relationship, just, just the incarnation of that message that he preached so beautifully. And um, I think I needed both of those in my life. And I think just for me as a person, uh, what the deepest impact for me with, in the life of Tim Keller is integrity. Uh, to be the same person when nobody's looking to have the message that you convey be the message that you're seeking to live, to have the truths that you're sharing others be the truths that you're sharing with yourself. I think that's what I saw in him. Uh, yeah, real deal. I mean, he was the real deal. Um, uh, here come the texts. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'll just... Yeah, they just, I remember I remember the first time I heard him speak, um, he spoke on the jealousy of God, and um, he had spoke about how, you know, we often think about jealousy in, in ways that uh, are negative, and, um, but one of the things that he was talking about was that jealousy is really a fight for love, and that the jealousy of God is this desire to, 
to love us, and then we, you know, the, the way that a, a husband may be jealous for the, the love of his wife, like it's a good kind of love, and um, the way that he wrapped that in the grace of God, uh, it blew my mind, and when I first heard that sermon, I didn't really know who he was, uh, and then went home and I Googled him, I was like, oh, this guy's a thing, um, and then uh, we just, from there, in took everything, everything we could get our hands on, every sermon, every book, um, absolutely changed our lives. Uh, I'm here now, you're all here now, because God providentially put me in that Bible study in 2008 or whatever it was, and I got to hear Tim speak about the jealousy of God, and um, again, I think we could spend all afternoon um, talking about Tim, and I, you know, hopefully there's, there's going to be opportunities for us to do that, uh, and the real significance um, of him and us personally. Um, I do want to, maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about, um, maybe kind of one step further, just as far as him as a leader, you alluded to this already, <clears throat> but just the real significance of who he was as a person, and the things that we've learned as leaders, um, and some of his instincts around what ministry ought to be and his theological convictions around certain ideas really have shaped us as, as leaders. Um, and I, I don't think that it's just for those that are in pastoral ministry. I think that the kinds of things that we learned from Tim are actually extraordinarily applicable to all of us, and it's really made him who he was. Um, so I'll just get us started, but a couple, one, of, one thing that... Uh, very much was uh, true for how people experienced him in a public setting, um, but it was also very true as Abe's sharing kind of more behind the scenes, is just um, just a humble, humble listener and learner. Someone who just, even if people like ferociously disagreed with him or just had just even the worst things to say about him, he would stop and he would listen. And he would learn from whatever they had to share. And even if he disagreed, uh, he had a posture of willingness to listen to people that he disagreed from uh, with, and and then a willingness to learn what to take whatever he could from what they were saying, and weave it into his own thinking. Um, really believing, like had a high view of the image of God in all of us. And so even people that disagreed with him, he was willing to listen and learn. Um, and that is not something most of us are good at. I mean, the man, <laughs> he never was defensive. In fact, I can think of so many times, like, I wish he would have been so much more defensive. Like, defend yourself, man. Um, but he wouldn't do it. He was always willing to listen and learn and be gracious. Um, so, that, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm sure you'd agree with that. But that was one thing that kind of, uh, one takeaway, for sure, that I've tried to embody in my own life. <laughs> Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. I think the other thing that uh, went deep for me was his deep prayer and devotional life. Uh, I mean, he had a mind that could remember just about anything he read, but when it came to the scriptures, it wasn't just a mental recall. It really was this deep, secret life with God that as a pastor, you know, it's one thing to kind of develop the skill of preaching or develop the skill of leadership, but the substance of that secret, unseen uh, life of prayer and in Scripture uh, time and time again 
it was just evident to me that he was very serious about that. And again, I'm like a child of Korean immigrants, and so the Korean church was known for like its early morning prayers, praying for hours upon hours upon hours. But then us second generation were like, eh, we ain't gonna do that. Like, that's super tiring, we can't do all that. But to see like basically a white guy like living this life of prayer, uh, I think for me was just another challenge as well. And so he always, I think that's from a pastoral perspective, that's one of the things that I always felt challenged with. Like, how is your prayer life? Um, people can sniff out an inauthentic presentation of these ideas if they haven't really sunk deep into your soul. I will say it too, too, too. I'm not, not, not trying to talk trash about Tim. Love Tim, obviously. But one thing that I learned about him in leadership that I vowed not to replicate was his workaholism, basically. There was one time he showed us, he's like, yeah, you know, I take, the 20, I take the seven days a week, I break them down into 21 units, morning, afternoon, evening, and I take five units off. And I'm like, I ain't doing that. Uh, but there was this drive, and I don't know, he was just this machine. We used to talk a little bit about how he's like this ministry cyborg, right? And it's just like this machine, and he kept on doing it, and he was able to maintain health in the midst of that, but I knew for me that that wasn't going to be the case. So Yeah, I, I mean, I... I said this on Friday, but yeah, I've often just affectionately called him a freak of nature because his brain just did not work the same as the rest of us. It just, um, actually, I remember what Kathy was just joking that he doesn't take the trash out without a book in his hand. Um, he's just constantly engaged, uh, engaging his mind. Um, yeah, I think the, the only other maybe thing I'd say about this piece that I think is really helpful for us as leaders, but it's also extraordinarily helpful, I think, for all of us. You know, in the last couple of days, there's been just countless posts about him and people very much reflecting on the significance of his ministry and reflecting on the same, like, humble, generous, gracious um, person that he was. One of the things that's extraordinary is that uh, the full spectrum of, like, you know, left to right, uh, progressive to conservative, it's the full spectrum that are currently honoring Tim. And one of the reasons being is that he just refused to be co-opted by, like, any particular stream. Truth was truth. Um, and in the landscape of the, you know, conservative, progressive world, conservatives are idolatrous. Progressives are idolatrous. There are things that need to be confronted in each. And then there's also affirmations of things that they get right. And he just, he was that guy that was constantly, you know, he... People often call it the third way, like the guy that just refused to believe that one way was better than the other, that there were things that needed to be held in tension constantly. And we just live in a world. Um, we just live in a world that refuses to let that happen. Um, and that may be actually even the case for, for some of us here. Just we refuse to allow uh, that, to hold that tension and everything becomes... Um, you know, one way or the other. And so that's just another thing that I, again, like taking away from him just as a leader. Uh, truth is truth. And um, as a result, we're never going to fit completely into any one particular stream. And I think that's very instructive uh, as well for all of us. Um, last thing I, maybe we can, we can share a little bit uh, about is, you know, I think those are the kinds of things. And again, there's so much more that have impacted us as leaders and as pastors um, but there's also a lot that, um, you know, you, you may not be aware of, but th that Tim really impacted in the life of our church. Like the, the, the things that REH is, so much of it, 
uh, can be kind of tied back to some of the things that, um, that we learned from him uh, or that he helped articulate uh, for us. Um, and there's, there's a few things in particular, but I think the, the, the one thing that immediately comes to mind, and, and maybe you can uh, share some of the things that uh, connect with you, but this idea of, of a holistic gospel, I think Tim really uh, helped frame so much of my own thinking in that arena. And by that, I mean that we believe that the gospel is a gospel of uh, restoration and redemption for people. And so it's a good news for individuals who need to be saved by grace through repentance and faith. But that the gospel is also a message of cosmic restoration, that there's a renewal of all things that God is accomplishing through creation. And so as a result of that, we can engage in, in works of ministry out in the world and very much see that as true gospel ministry reflecting the kingdom of God. Um, and so, so much of even what we do at like a community outreach level or like engaging in issues of justice, like these, this is gospel ministry because it's reflecting um, the, whole, the, the, the renewal of all things that Jesus is accomplishing through his life, death, and resurrection. So having both of those things, right, two sides of the same coin, um, having both of those things um, in view very much shapes who we are as a church, what we believe. We want personal restoration through repentance and faith, and we also want to reflect the kingdom of God in a holistic way in the world through acts of mercy and justice. And so that's one thing that he helped articulate. I mean, he's not the one who, you know, Jesus articulated that first, but uh, he's the one that helps maybe frame some of that uh, for contemporary days um, that have yeah, very much impacted the life of our church. I don't think there's anything else you want to share. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think maybe the one piece I would add, too, is, you know, he would talk a lot about the importance of the church being the upside-down community of God. Uh, so the church is a place where all the power structures of the world are inverted. So in the world, the strong are the strong, the powerful are the powerful, the rich are the rich. But in the kingdom of God, it's the weak who are strong. You know, it's the poor who are rich. Uh, it's the vulnerable and forgotten who are seen and centered. And and I think he would... he connected those dots of personal heart renewal, but then also transformation in the world with the importance of a community that was willing to live by the inverted priorities of the kingdom of God. And so you maybe have heard of my preaching, but when I talk about the whole world being turned upside down, that this, the church, the community, the church is meant to be that people, that Christians are meant to be the ones who are going to center those on the margins, who will lift up those who are downtrodden, who will be close to the brokenhearted and the wounded. Uh, and to embody that as a community, I think, is something was was always an ideal that was very front and center for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, last thing I would say, and then we'll maybe just shift a bit to some of the things that he shared. Um, the way he, his preaching, of course, was very much... Uh, one of the things that made him kind of well-known around the world and one of the things about his preaching that was so significant that uh, changed both of our ministries and our, our understanding of... Dang it. It is what it is. Um, our understanding of preaching and what is to be accomplished in preaching is that Jesus is the center of all things, that Jesus is the, the centerpiece of Scripture, that every story is pointing us to Jesus, that Jesus is the hero of every story uh, of the Bible, that the climax of every sermon ought to be the work of Jesus on our behalf. I mean, these are the things that um, Tim very much shaped in how we preach and what we understand, again, uh, preaching and gospel ministry to be. And so, uh, 
again, I think that's instructive for us uh, as, as preachers and as teachers, but it's incredibly instructive for all of us that Jesus always be the hero of every story. One of the things that, uh, you know, Abe was, is he's talking about legalism and the notion of constantly feeling like I need to do, do, do in order to, you know, either merit the favor of God or the blessings of God that takes Jesus out of that center and it puts me right smack dab in the center of it. I mean, one of the things that Tim used to always say is that one of the things that we're doing as we pursue kind of more of a works righteousness uh, is ultimately trying to put God in our debt to say, God, look at all the things that I've done for you. You now owe me a good life. You now owe me a blessed life. Um, and that's just completely anti-gospel. And, and Tim's constant articulation was, yes, God calls us to do good works. He calls us to be holy and pure, but we don't do that as a way of meriting his favor, but rather because of Jesus uh, and the grace of God, we are accepted and loved in Jesus. And as a result of that, we can now then go and be pure and righteous uh, and just. And uh, having that kind of articulation just completely reframed my understanding of the work of Jesus, the gospel. And um, so, yes, that's impacted me as a preacher. But, I mean, that goodness, that is a lesson that we all need to constantly be reminded of that Jesus is the center. Um, let's maybe just spend uh, the next couple minutes just in kind of wrapping this, this piece up. But he gives three bits of advice um, in that video that I want to encourage us all to process. Uh, he talks about that we are to, to live on a razor's edge, which essentially is to be a distinct people um, in the city, that we are not uh, to fully immerse ourselves and kind of lose our identity as Christians, uh, but we're also not to stay on the outside, just kind of looking in, throwing, throwing stones um, at a you know, depraved culture, but really to engage uh, a culture that we live in, but to do so distinctly. He talks about investing and not consuming, that God has put us here uh, not to just take what we can get from the city, and so many people do. They come to New York to just take, 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 uh, but rather to invest and to give um, in the city, uh, and then ultimately connected to that, to forget about our own reputations, but to ultimately be about the glory of Jesus. Um, those are really instructive words. Um, I don't know if there's maybe one that kind of, I know they all kind of resonate with us, but one that maybe stands out to you as you're thinking about it. I mean, I think all those are great, but one of the things that I've really been wrestling with over the last day or two, and again, maybe just as a pastor who's been deeply influenced by him, someone, you know, who sees him as a spiritual father, you know, Tim's passing leaves, in my mind, a, a huge void uh, in the work that we're trying to do here in New York City. And I think on my good moments in the last 48 hours, I've asked myself, who of us will be willing to step up into that void to continue on the legacy of what he left behind. The thing about, and I've been thinking about this a lot, the thing about fathers, I think, is that fathers have the ability to set the horizon of what's possible. They kind of frame, here's the world that we live in, and here's what we're capable of. Here's what's possible. And I think Tim, for me, uh, set that horizon. He created this frame, and I said, I think we can do that because Tim says we can do that. And now with his absence, I, I feel a, a gaping hole, and I, I don't feel like someone who can fill that gap. I don't, that frame now feels like an empty void. But I think the challenge before us is, as we think about this next chapter, Jesus is the same Jesus, but God is the same God. And his love for this city has not changed. 
And so for me, even thinking about those three points, it's how many of us are willing to pick up part of that baton and ask ourselves, how could I live differently to see the mission of the kingdom of God uh, in this city to carry on this legacy? And again, my worst moments, there are parts of me that says, Is any, what's the point anymore? But in my better moments, I say, Jesus is the same Jesus. And Tim would not want us to be despondent because he was gone. He would want us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I guess I'll challenge you the way that I've been challenging myself. Let's pick up the baton on this next leg of the race. And I don't know what that looks like for each of you. I don't even know what that looks like for me. Uh, but let's do that uh, because it's the same author, same perfecter. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to actually, because I want to pick up on that, I'm going to transition. Uh, thank you, Abe. Uh, yeah, thank you. Because um, I do, I do want to put a, a challenge in front of us uh, just as we close. Uh, and what Abe just shared I think is exactly, exactly right. Um, let me just quickly. So in, in, if you've been with us, we've been in the, in the book of John. And I'm, I'm, I'll be brief. I won't, uh, I'm not going to launch into a whole sermon right now. But <clears throat> in John... Uh, the study of John, one of the sections of John that we didn't really get a chance to get to um, was a portion of John 3. Um, and basically the context of what's going on in John 3, this section, uh, is that John the Baptist, he's been baptizing people. And some of his followers uh, have heard about Jesus and some of the popularity that Jesus is beginning to experience. Uh, and so they come, these followers, they go to John uh, really concerned that Jesus seems to be, you know, having all these new followers, uh, they're really concerned that uh, it's going to, in some way, that, you know, kind of a debate ends up uh, coming between John and his followers about this Jesus guy. But let me just read for you a section of John 3. I'm going to be in verse, um, I'll start, let me start in verse 25, and then I'm going to read through 30, 31. But this is what it says. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a, cer uh, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given, uh, given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride, comes, uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. And here's a very famous verse. John says, he must become greater. I must become less. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Here's what strikes me about this, this passage. John has disciples who very much believe in his ministry. And they see all these different gifts that John has, all this ministry success that John has. And they get nervous about someone else who comes along and might be in some way undermining all the successes that John has had uh, in his ministry. And John's immediate reaction could be one of defensiveness. It could be one of 
also being a little bit nervous about this Jesus guy who's going to in some way undermine uh, the, the, uh, his, the ministry that he has uh, been experiencing the success of his ministry. But that's not his reaction. His reaction instead is to immediately consider the reality that the gifts he's been given, the things that John holds, the successes that John has, all of them have been good gifts of God, that God has given those to him for a particular kind of ministry and season. And he recognized that for him to hold to those things as though they were for his own self-glory in some way would have completely undermined the purpose of God in giving him those gifts. And I think what's really struck me about that as I think about um, Tim and as I think about, you know, over these last couple of days, you know, Tim was also uh, a man of great ministry successes. Again, uh, often referred to him as that freak of nature because he really had this like brilliant mind. Right? He was a brilliant thinker. He was a brilliant communicator. Uh, Abe alluded to this, but he's said this on several of occasions where he would, he would say, you know, people, they always say I'm really intelligent, but it's not really true. I just remember everything I read. <laughs> like, I don't know what intelligence is then. Um, but he really, he did have that kind of mind. You know, the New York Times called Tim Keller the, the, uh, the, the C.S. Lewis of this generation. And actually, as I've thought about it more, um, he would hate me saying this, like hate it. But it is true that I think that comparison won't in the long run prove him justice. I actually think his, his legacy and, and uh, impact even will extend beyond the impact that even like a C.S. Lewis happened in large part because of the way that Tim's legacy has impacted pockets of the globe that I don't think C.S. Lewis ever broke into. That said, like all that said, Tim was this brilliant mind, amazing ministry successes, and yet you know what? I know that for Tim, his response was very much like that of John in the sense that yes, maybe some might come acknowledging all the successes, but for Tim, his response would be, all of this, whatever I have, is a gift of God. And it's been a gift of God for the purpose of actually proclaiming the coming of this Jesus. And that ultimately, I need to decrease so that he might increase. And as I've thought about that for myself, I've thought about how, how much that actually is true for all of us. That all of us have been given particular gifts of God. That God has in some way, uh, we've, getting, we've been getting skills, different gifts, different passions, different experiences. There are things that we hold, all of us, that God has gifted to us that we could use for our own glory. We could use to gain attention. We could use for our own self-promotion. But we also could choose to take those good gifts of God and use them for what God ultimately gave them to us to do, which is to make known Jesus, to proclaim this Jesus that has come, to proclaim, as John puts it, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You know, I don't know that we think about often enough that what we do have, God gives to us for this kind of purpose, to reflect this gospel hope that maybe we have experienced, to use what we have to express that and to show it to others. The other thing that kind of strikes me, and I'll, I'll close with this idea, you know, Jesus in this passage, I won't go back through it, but um, is described as a bridegroom. John notes Jesus as a bridegroom. 
In Ephesians 5, uh, also refers to Jesus as a bridegroom and describes Jesus as one who lays down his life for his bride, for his church. And it, it's not lost on me. It strikes me that Jesus, he uses his power, his glory, his talents, so to speak, not for his own good, but rather he uses all that power and all that glory for the good of those that he came to serve, those that he loves, those who put their faith in him, he laid down his life so that we might experience the redemption. I mean, Jesus himself gives us this example. And so my encouragement, I think, for all of us would be first and foremost to find our hope and our rest and our trust in the same places that Tim and many others have in Jesus, the one who has accomplished much for us. But then as we do that, to recognize that he has given us something he has placed some good gift in our hand so that in our homes and in our families and in our workplaces and with our neighbors and amongst our friends that we might be able to make much of Jesus. You know, for me, the biggest takeaway above everything else that I will ever have from Tim is the way that he made much of Jesus. And I pray that we all have that same mindset and hearts to make much of Jesus that I would decrease, that he might increase. And you know, the irony of that is as we decrease, we also experience a fullness of life that we'll never experience if we're always about the pursuit of our own increase. But as we decrease, as we experience the greater, the, uh, greater depths of the love of Jesus, it then makes him all the more, that much more glorious in our lives. And I pray that that would be a reality in each of us, that we all become those that are reflecting gospel hope, the love of God in Christ, wherever we might go because of what God has given to us. So that in mind, let's pray together in response to all of this. And also have Abe come and I think it would be appropriate to be reminded of the work of Jesus and his resurrection power by being able to take the Lord's Supper again together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminders that you give us of your grace. And Lord, sometimes those reminders come through the life of other people. And as we thought about today, one reminder of your grace has certainly come from our brother, our friend, our pastor, Tim. But Lord, I pray that we would not be tempted to um, think as though the things that made the most impact on us were his brilliance or his intellect or his communication abilities. But what really makes the impact is the grace of God, your grace in Jesus that was communicated through him. And so we, may, may we be enthralled once again by that grace. And as we are, would you remind us that we too have been given gifts and abilities, experiences and opportunities to make known the glories of Jesus in all the places that you call us to go. May it really be true of us that we decrease so that he might increase. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.